Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security, Security Confidential. Today, we have another fabulous guest with us. He is Paul Hammond. Paul is a cybersecurity executive. He is an expert in many things, He especially cloud computing. Uh, he has worked at so many companies that you all have heard of out there, people like Truist, people like SunTrust and Capital One. Uh, he is a contributor to CIO Review, and most recently, uh, he's been a contributor to IDG CIO Think Tank Roadmap Report on Setting the Multi-Cloud Agenda. Paul, thank you for being here, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Manoj. I appreciate it, and uh, very excited to be on your program. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, there's so much to discuss. I don't know if we're going to get through. I, I We have a laundry list of questions, but if we miss some stuff, uh, maybe they'll give us a reason to have a second conversation. Uh, so, you know, to, to start off with, you know, uh, one thing uh, very interesting that, that I noticed on, on your profile is how you started your career. And, you know, there's a lot of folks that listen to this show who start from very, very humble beginnings. And, and there's this notion that, you know, because I was X or I'm just a sock analyst or I am just that word, just whatever. And how will I ever be a CISO or a CIO or a CXO of any kind? We like to break those boundaries and, and you've done that and done that very, very successfully. So give us a little bit of background on, on how you evolved your career, how it all began and where you went, how you did it. Sure. Thank you. Um, so when, uh, when I came out of high school, I had planned on being a business major, but okay. majority of my friends, uh, they were two to three years ahead of me in school. So they were, when I was finishing, they were coming back. The opportunities okay. that were being proposed to them were, hey, manage this fast food restaurant. And this was after, you know, going and getting an MBA and something. And to me, that was not what I wanted to do was, was <laughs> to have an opportunity of managing a, a fast food uh, chain. Not that there's anything wrong with it. That just wasn't my goal. But that was the opportunities that was being presented to people that I knew um, that were coming back from college with these degrees. So at that point, I was like, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to take a little bit of time off and in between school. And I worked full time 11th and 12th grade years. Um, but then I also uh, coming out, you know, during that that break, so to speak, I was working two to three jobs at a time, usually so I could make ends meet. Um, I worked framing houses in, in Florida. I was in wow. Florida when this happened. So <laughs> good times in the sun. Um, wow. Framed houses for uh, several months and then had an opportunity uh, to go and clean pools, which it actually paid a little bit better. Wasn't as dangerous as getting, you know, 40 feet up in the air with no type of, you know, tie offs or anything like that and trying to frame That's houses. That's interesting. So I moved over into, you know, cleaning pools for a little while and, um, finished up my two-year uh, associate degree at a technical college in Florida and worked okay. full-time while I was doing that. I was putting myself through school and uh, my father had come up and bought my grandfather out of his business here in Virginia. At okay. that point in time, uh, you know, my grandfather was getting up in age and wasn't able to, you know, keep up with the volume of work and the technology changes that were coming. Um, okay. So my dad had asked me to come back up to Virginia and help him run the shop. So it just so happened when I came back, that was right at the point in time when uh, cars were going from a lot of very mechanical controlled type cables and stuff like that to electronically controlled and can controlled by the computer. So I actually- well, It's like the late 90s, early yes. 2000s? Yes, correct. Late 90s, early 2000s. Well, it was really the late 90s. So the latter half of the 90s, and this was probably like 97, 98 timeframe. And I came back up and started helping him. And I used my background in uh, computer science from components and working with chips to actually start to troubleshoot the issues with the cars. Um, I'd gotten, really? I'd gotten to a point to where 
dealerships, when the dealership couldn't figure out the problem, they were sending the stuff to us. So, so their computer, the handheld device that plugs into the port, that today, I, I from what I understand, they've gotten very sophisticated, but I take mm -hmm. it back then they didn't have that, or even today they, they're not that capable. Yeah, there's still, uh, and I still catch service <laughs> managers like not troubleshooting things properly, but it's hard to tell them, you know, <laughs> hey, I used to do this. This is why you're doing it wrong. But um, it, there's there can be a lot more to it. And because, you know, a lot of times on you, those computers are a lot more advanced and you can get a lot more information out of them now than what we used to be able to. But I started to learn about digital and analog, you know, signal signals, right, on off. A lot of mechanics that had been, you know, coming up, they weren't exposed to electronics at all. So they didn't have this experience or background. And I just started to apply the computer science and component level knowledge that I'd learned in the tech school to troubleshooting and fixing cars. And I became fairly, fairly decent at it. Wow. Um, that, from, that's incredible. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I, this is fascinating, please. <laughs> so, you know, I did that. And for a while, I actually I, I moved up front, too, because uh, for a while I was doing all the computer diagnosis and then taking transmissions in and out of cars, putting them in. And then, and then I was doing quality control. I would drive them, make sure that the computers reset the shift points inside of the cars properly so that it drove properly for the customer when they picked the vehicle back up. And then my dad moved into the back and let me start running the front. So I was running the front end of the business. Plus I was spending most of my time up front because I was doing all this electronic diagnosis all the time. It just made sense for me to be up front because going from front to back with the, you know, with the computer, it just made more sense for me to move up front and run the business in the front end. Um, so long story short, I got bored. Um, you know, my dad had planned on me taking that position over, taking the company over and running it and and keeping it within the family but uh i got bored and you know i also felt like there may have been some monetary limits on what i could actually make okay. um that i would hit some ceilings at some point that i didn't think long term was going to reach my own financial and monetary goals that i kind of started putting into my head of what you know i wanted to do so i went out and although I, good repair shops make a fortune today but well, so we were, and they're very rare <laughs> and they're rare. We were landlocked. So we were limited. Oh. We, we had a three bay shop. Uh, we've talked to other guys that had six bay shops that weren't making as much money out of their six bay shop as what we were making out of our three bay shop. And a lot of that was because of our processes and our procedures that we put in place, which was knowing what we had coming in, making sure we had the right inventory in, in place we knew the common inventory that we needed to keep in place. We even, we even had very large uh, auto parts manufacturers that were local that sometimes they were buying parts from us because we were managing our supply chain better than what they were. And then some of the things we were actually buying cheaper than what they could buy them for because we had a better relationship with the vendor that produced that particular thing that they wanted to resell. So that's... Yeah, we were doing very well, and but you know, I I was like, I'm gonna go try my hand at computers. So, still had my two year degree at this point. I went and found a job out of the newspaper. Uh, it was a systems technician for Ralph Lauren Children's Wear Distribution Center. It was located in West Virginia. I worked on an AS400 mainframe, wow. and then we had about a 300. Uh, you know, back then it would have there's been. There's a whole bunch of those still out there. Yeah. You know that. <laughs> I'm sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no, I, a lot of people listening may not know what an AS400 is, but it's it, very commonly used. Uh, and still a lot of them are alive and, and ticking. But mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I was doing well there. Um, but at, at that time, I was also started to take MCSE classes. Okay. Um, and what happened was uh, when I started, when I first started going into MCSE classes, I was going in in my, you know, my work clothes. So I smelled like transmission fluid and, and grease and everything else because I, I left straight after work and went into class. And the teacher that was there saw that I, I wasn't wearing, you know, work uniform anymore. I was wearing like normal clothes, not, not mechanic clothes. 
And he's like, well, did you change jobs or something? I was like, yeah, I, I went off and, and got me a job, you know, systems technician up here, you know, told him what I was doing. And he was like, you know what? He's like, we've been looking for a web engineer. And he goes, I know you haven't done it before, but you know, I think you may be a good fit for it. So I go and I interviewed for a web engineer job. Uh, and this, I'd only been a systems technician for about six months, but he saw that I changed, I made that jump, right? I made the career jump yeah. and, you know, he saw what I was doing in class. So he felt like I'd be a good add to his team. So I went up there, I interviewed, I, I landed the job. Um, and that was uh, ECI, e-commerce solutions. They were located in Reston, Virginia. And okay. when I first got there, I actually used, I, I don't like to tell too many people this because it looked. It gets looked on poorly, but I did telemarketing for a little while to uh, to pay bills and put myself. Hey, man, school. there's nothing wrong with that. Inside sales is a is a real job in any company. Yeah, and you know, anytime I felt like the company was doing something that wasn't honest, I usually left because after that, I couldn't sell anything for them. I, I, I realized I was like, oh, they're doing that, and I was like, I got to go find another job. So, um, but I during that, I learned I I evolved, you know, being able to talk to people on the phone and also learned how to put people at ease on the phone, you know, because when people, you call people as a telemarketer, they're immediately, no, you know, I don't want to talk to you. Right. Well, yeah. one of the key projects we had there was migrating 3000 websites and their DNS and email from one system to a new system. So when I first got there, they had three contractors working on it. They still had a stack like that. They're going through papers and going, okay, this customer's done, this customer, I got a recall. And I came in there, listened to what they were doing. And I was like, I know what the problem is. Nobody, you know, they all think this per these people are faking it, right? And they don't want to talk to them. So I actually used my telemarketing skills. I ripped through that whole stack and finished that whole stack in two or three months. And that wow. other team of three people had already been working on it for six months. So shortly after that, they put me in charge of about 50% of their production operations e-commerce platforms that was generating about $10 million in transactions per month. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then shortly, I was there for about four years. And then shortly after, so about, I joined there about 2000, about 2002, the internet bubble was bursting. So all of our senior guys were either getting laid off or they were leaving the company. I was still pretty green, you know, about four and a half, you know, at that point I was what, two and a half years in the industry. So people are just coming to me and they're like, Hey Paul, you ever run DNS before? No. You want to do it? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll give it a try. <laughs> um, why not? Yeah, why not? So, I mean, that's been a big thing for my career, right? When people have come to me with stuff that I haven't worked on or haven't done, I've always been like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll, why not? I'll give it a try. It's something new to learn. Why not? Right? So, so discomfort is not, is something that you're comfortable with. It, no, you're very, <laughs> if I said that right, <laughs> and, and a lot of people are not. Yeah, that's true. I've probably taken on a lot of risk, uh, you know, as I've stepped through different different roles. And, you know, when I started out, I didn't know what a CISO was. I'm not even sure we even had CISOs back then. I'm sure there was probably some. There's, yeah, I think Tony Spinelli may have been one that was floating around back then, but there wasn't many, right? And, and the cyber industry really wasn't, you know, there were still things out there, but not like it is today. Right. I mean, as a web engineer, we were hardening the servers. We were doing access control for stuff. We were doing those security things as part of our web engineer role or position. And then we were also doing the operations piece, too. Right. Which was making sure that the platforms are up and available and that the response times are correct for people to do a search. Right. Like if these were office product supplies. Um, Yep. And I actually was managing, I think they're still the largest independent office product supply dealer in the United States. That was also one of their websites that I was running. And during that time when everybody was leaving, I was also on call for six months straight. I carried a wow. pager. There's many times me and my, you know, now wife, she was my girlfriend. Then we were out 
you know, having dinner someplace. And I was like, oh, pager went off. I was like, check right now. I got to go. And the person would walk over with the check and set it down and go to walk off. And I'm like, no, you stay right here. I'm like, I got to go now. Right. And I'm, you know, signing a check and throwing it at them and running out the door because I still had 15 wow. minutes to get back to my house. Um, but I wasn't going to stay home for, you know, six months straight, uh, especially when there wasn't a pandemic back then. So, um, you know, I went ahead and, and, and filled those roles. I actually was able to take the uptime on those platforms from like a 99.75 up to three nines. I think we were about a 99.98 wow. uptime and availability for the platform uh, when I left. And then, and see, to our listeners, that may not seem like a like much, <laughs> but the reality is that that two tenths of an improvement is a is on a logarithmic curve, mm -hmm. if you will. Yeah. So it, it's it's non trivial. It's like uh, you know the the Richter scale. <laughs> yeah, know, there's a big difference between a three and a three point five magnitude earthquake, and it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yep. And the same thing with security controls when you implement security controls, because I'll use that same methodology there as well, where we're, you know, we'll have like 60 percent of the controls implemented going from 60 to 80 percent. That's usually kind of cake. Right. It's pretty easy once you start putting focus on it and, and targeting the work and going after it. You can do that. But when you get up to that 80 percent up to, you know, 90s and up into the higher 90s. You know, it's it's a slog to to get through that and make improvements to actually get that needle to move. Right. It's a lot harder to get that. Needle right. To move. Well, and a lot of that is also I would um, imagine, at least from my experience in processes that integrate across those controls as well to make them operational. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, when I was starting out, I never thought CISO or anything. But what I did start thinking was I want to move up. Right take on responsibility. I learn more, I become more valuable and I move up. One of the key things, and especially people starting out in the industry, one of the best pieces of advice from my, my first mentor, Will Arias, who's now a fast track architect at Microsoft. I still talk to him on occasions. Um, we're just busy and miss each other a lot. But one of the most important things that he ever taught me when I was starting out was, if you wanna move forward in your career, you will document everything you do so that the person that comes in behind you can pick that document up and should be able to do that job either 100% or 80 or 90%. He said, that's what's going to free you up so that you can move on to the next interesting thing that you want to work on. But if you get See, that, go ahead. That is sage advice. But you, you were saying, but what's the but in this? But if you. <laughs> If you if you don't do that, what happens is you get pigeonholed, right? You become the guy for that or girl, right? Guy or girl, excuse me. Um, but you become the person that's known for, you know, email or distribution lists or, you know, this or that. And I've always wanted to learn as much as I possibly can. You know, I probably, you know, have some attention deficit disorder probably someplace with me, but that's part of why I got into computers, right? Because it's always changing. There's always something new to learn. And especially with the threat actors, now there's always some new piece of ransomware or malware that they're putting out that does this and that. And you have to figure out how that happens and how do I prevent it from, you know, being able to get onto our machines and, and taking all those different things into account. But you know what, Paul? That I think you gave away a big secret there, and, and it's an it's a very important one. And I'm going to repeat it that, you know, you want to document the heck out of what you do so you can move on. The I think a lot of people what they fear is that they're going to get put themselves out of a job. Yep. They're really uncomfortable with that. They're like, well, if I'm the email guy, I'm really valuable, and I could probably spend you know, 10 years just doing that and, 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 and be safe. And I, and in safety, there's no progress. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. And a lot of times when I start to hit like a comfort, like I've, you know, there's not much more I can do here. I usually find myself wanting to move on. 
Um, and that's, you know, part of the moving on has been opportunity to do more, take on more responsibility, challenge myself to do things that I hadn't done before. Um, you know, like a few years later and, you know, I went to from the, the e-commerce platform, I went to a biometrics company. I started getting involved with government work there, um, was at the biometrics company for, you know, several years. They actually hired me on the do help desk because I got laid off from the e-commerce job. I got laid off from there. Wow. Yeah. Um, even though I was running all the, so they I'm sure got, you weren't an unemployed for very long. <laughs> well, actually I was because the, the problem was I only had, when I got laid off, I only had about four and a half years of experience. I only had my two year degree. Right. And don't area, you think that that can be a false God too? you know, how much experience and whatnot. It's really about the attitude. I mean, what I'm listening to here is having that can do, and I'm going to get it done. I don't care. Exactly. And that's, I, I look for more aptitude and attitude than I do certifications, school, or anything else. Because when I was sitting at the e-commerce place, I can tell you right now, the guy that had his MCSE and had his four-year degree, guess who he turned around and asked what he should do when he fixed something? You. There you go. And then that frustrated me because then I found out he's making what? And I'm making what? Like, well, that's not fair, right? But during that time, it was right probably around 2004, they laid me off. And because of that, so the internet bubble, right? I'm in Northern Virginia. There was all kinds of people in the market because so many internet companies had shut down. And a lot of these people had five, six, they had me by two years of experience, two years of work experience. And they had me by a two-year degree. They Most of them had their four-year degrees at this point. So, and I didn't have my four-year degree, but people were using that. You don't have this certification. You don't have a four-year degree. Therefore, you don't qualify. I'm like, yeah, but I, I know how to do this, right? And, but I wasn't getting through the resume grinder. So it, it you know, I had about six months before I actually found the you know, we want somebody to run our, our desktops, right. And run help desk for us internally for this biometrics company. And I took that opportunity because I wanted to pay the bills. So I took that opportunity. I was there for about six months and I'm sitting there in a meeting and they said, wow, we just won this contract with, with a, I'm not going to say the, it was with a large system integrator to do the transportation workers identification and credentialing system. The large okay. system integrator said, hey, we were you've got the biometric engine piece as part of this subcontract, but you also we want you to run the data center, too. Well, as I'm sitting there at the table listening to a bunch of VPs and SVPs and, and C-levels talk about winning this contract and how excited they are. And now they've got this problem. Because the system integrator wants to give them the data center work. So I'm sitting there and I go, did, did, did you guys look at my resume? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, uh, so like running data center stuff is like what I was actually doing before I came here to do help yeah. desk. <laughs> and they're like, really? And I was like, uh, yeah, it was running about, you know, two, 300 servers. We had our own data center and we migrated the and data 10 center million and, in transactions a month. Uh, yeah. And so they were like, oh, well, Hey, okay. You're going to go up there and run Twic data center then for the transportation workers identification credentialing system, which was in, uh, I probably shouldn't say it was in Maryland. <laughs> okay. Um, up by some special buildings in Maryland. We'll just leave it at that. Um, and there was also some people running out of that data center that had very, you know, sensitive information that they were dealing with, too. But uh, so when I get there, I, I start looking at what I'm working with. The first thing that I notice is they say, well, you got three people that you put on here. And I was like, OK, so we're going to patch during uh, business hours. No, you can't patch during business hours. And I was like, three people ain't going to be enough. And need at least five people to do 24 seven data center operations, at least five. So immediately I got two or three people added to the contract 
that was not in there originally. So, you know, the company loved me for that because now I'm adding money and revenue back onto yeah, them because I've already increasing revenue. Yeah. I've already spotted a problem. I haven't even touched anything yet. So, um, you know, long story short, we took a program, the, the Twic pro uh, project had been, they'd been working on it for like two years. Um, we had about six months to take it from, you know, government's mad because it hasn't gone live to going live. And essentially we went in and, and had to bring, you know, make sure all the backups, all the system security was done and make sure that we could pass the government audit before we could turn it on and start taking, you know, biometrics for people and, and being able to do those things as well. Um, so, another, you know, you go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, another project that I'd done while I was there too. And some people probably know this one, which is called the clear program that you have in the airports today. Um, oh, so you're responsible for that. <laughs> at least at the beginning. Okay. <laughs> when it first started, um, there was no TSA pre-check, right? Um, that, right? That was another scenario, right? I'd never built out a full PKI solution before, but for that, we had to build out a full PKI, you know, a root CA, a subordinate CA, issuing certificate authority. And the only thing I'd done before was I stood up a CA in our dev environment when I was doing the e-commerce stuff. So we didn't have to pay for certificates because back then you had to pay like 800 bucks for a certificate for a web server. And I figured out, well, I can just generate these certs internally and just tell our endpoints to trust the cert. We'll keep rolling them like we normally do on a yearly basis. But then, you know, we saved, you know, tens of thousands of dollars putting $800 certificates on each one of those servers like they were doing before. Now, let me, would that, would that still work today? given the fact the browsers pop up and say, well, this isn't issued by uh, issuing authority. So uh, I believe there's, I haven't tried it. I think that's a good point. Now you've got me interested and curious. Now I'm probably going to want to go test that because I'm not sure you should be able to stick it in a trusted store and be able to get your browser to trust it though, as long as you can do that chain of trust, but you have to have the right certs inside of your trusted certificate store. That um, I'm curious because th that there could be a chunk of change depending on how many servers you're running. Mm -hmm. Right. But I've noticed it quite a bit like uh, and some of these browsers uh, without naming names here get really intrusive and they're like, nah, we're not going to even let you pass go and collect 200. You know, you're yeah, <laughs> this certificate is not legit. So uh, it doesn't work. Yeah. And I've had that with but some of the browsers and I usually that's, you know, I've always got multiple browsers I'm working with too. So. <laughs> well, let, let me uh, switch just for a second back to something you said a little bit earlier about malware. And uh, one of the themes in what you've described to us thus far, and there's been several themes, but one of them that I caught was how you have dramatically increased the efficiency in processes and expedited delivery on whatever needed to be done. Now we're seeing the bad actors do the same thing. We're seeing dwell times have come way down. Like I, I remember they used to be like uh, 200 and some odd days before, and now we're down to 90 minutes or less in some instances, right? What has, what's driving that? Like, is the, the movement to the cloud? What, what's what's driving that? So I think what's driving the dwell times down is actually the defender's ability to detect them and ferret them out of an environment. Therefore, it puts them at risk of having to start all over again, right? So I think rather than laying dormant for an extended period of time, because they let's face it, some of the ransomware companies and malware people that are sending this stuff out, some of their businesses and processes that they have in place are actually better than some of the, you know, for-profit organizations that I've seen out there, you know, running things. I mean, they, they look at, you know, how they're doing it. And before they probably had people that they were breached, but they were like, they probably had a queue that they were working through of who were going to, you know, we've already, you know, infected all these companies. We're going to lay dormant because we're going to focus on these guys first, and then we'll circle back to these guys. But as the defenders and we've gotten better as an industry at, at finding and detecting them and getting them, kicking them out of an environment. You have to think about that. 
now when you kick them out of an environment, they have to start all over, right? That's a, a reinvestment that they have to put in. Um, so their return on that investment of doing the infection the first time has now gone down if they have to go in and do it again all over because the same methods so may me, not be there that they used before. So uh, let me ask you this. Is it is it really the detection or is it prevention? So has our prevention gotten that much better that they have to act faster or has our detection got that much faster? I, I think it's a combination of both. Right. Um, before, because, you know, the I, the U.S. Air Force had a, they, they coined a term called the prevention paradox. So this is why I bring this up, where they say the more you focus on prevention, the less secure you become, because essentially, if that's all you're focusing on, you lose the ability to uh, see the movement of the bad guys to anything that you cannot prevent. Yep. Absolutely. Right. Th that's I'm oversimplifying it, but that's pretty much the gist of it. So. That's why I'm trying to make that delineation, and I'd love to hear a real security professionals. <laughs> so you the are. you know I think it's both. I think it's both prevention and detection. Right? There's far more security awareness now for general users than what there's ever been that I can ever remember. Right? People are definitely you know starting to pay more attention. Um, you know, my parents they're in their seventies. Um, you know, they you know, sending links and what they click on, they're definitely more aware. They very, you know, rarely will click on a link that they get in an email anymore. You know, I've told them different, you know, methods of how to address that. If it's a password reset, it shouldn't be coming unless you just asked for it, you know, stuff like that. So I think it's both, right? And I still have to remind people this too, because I still have some folks that are like, hey, well, you know, Defender said it caught it, right? Yeah. Did it? Are we sure? So even if I have preventive controls in place, I'm still looking for detection, right? I don't let my guard down because there's always going to be a problem someplace, somewhere. Either somebody drops a control or it gets missed or there's a gap or, you know, the bad guys figured out how to get past the preventive control that you put in place. So now you're back into detection and response mode, right? What I try and That's use right. preventive for is let's, you know, let's use as many preventive controls as we possibly can. Cause I love preventive controls because it helps reduce a bunch of the noise for my detection and response folks to actually focus on the things that they need to be focusing on rather than having a bunch of noise coming through because you don't have a bunch of preventive controls. Cause I've seen this in orgs where the security operations team, they're, they're playing, you know, they're playing, uh, you know, cat and mouse with the DevOps teams all day long because the DevOps teams are overprivileged. They're making things public. The security operations guys are trying to come back in and go, Hey, why is that public? You know, take that down, you know, and doing stuff like that rather than working on, you know, yeah, we don't allow public S3 buckets and we don't allow, you know, uh, databases to be made public. You know, those types of things just automatically out the gate have no reason to be there without an exception being in place. And that's a weird exception to begin with. But, you know, they, they're spending more time doing stuff like that, triaging misconfigurations rather than focusing on doing the analysis for the detection and incident response pieces. Because and that's one of the things that I tell security people, especially if you're in security and, I, and they say, I have nothing to do and you're you're a, a engineer and they say they have nothing to do. I'm like, have you looked at a log? Why would I look at a log? That should, there should never be a point in time where you have nothing. To right. Do. Exactly. That's that's an impossibility, actually. I, I don't I don't know how that would be. Yeah. And what you're saying is exactly correct. I mean, for the bad guys, figuring out how you prevented them is not that hard. But figuring out how, how you detected them, that's non-trivial. Because mm -hmm. we we had, you know, a leader in the in EDR space and it pops off and says, hey, we stopped this. Awesome. I asked the guy, did you look at the event further? Did anything else launch? Not sure. I'm like, well, we need to go look at that, right? And sure enough, we started looking, 
And there was multiple, even though it caught the initial piece of malicious software, there was multiple processes that spun off in the background that were able to spin off that were not being detected and responded to with the software and the product, right? It required additional analysis. We had to go in and, and do some decryption on the MD5 hash and to pull a domain back. Then we started blocking the domain. Then we started getting more intelligence out of some of that information. Then we started blocking IPs. You know, we continued to develop that threat intelligence off of some of that information so that we could improve our uh, indicators of compromise to prevent the additional things that we saw spawning to try and prevent those as well. And then, you know, <laughs> nice enough, they took control of the security service and we're using oh, how, it. How convenient. Yeah. And using it maliciously, right? Because we were seeing where they're trying to decrypt the traffic using the security process inside of that memory space. And they were, you know, they were doing weird things inside of that space. So, but, you know, if you just took the alert at face value when you first looked at it, hey, we caught this, detected this, and stopped it and didn't look at what came afterwards, all of that would have been missed. And see, that points to where security really needs to be. And I think prior to the show, we, we you were on this just slightly about it being a team activity. And this is a great exemplification of that. Mm -hmm. You know, just because some automation picked up something, that team still better be vigilant and operate as a holistic unit to find all these ancillary things that, that happen. Yep, absolutely. Right. And um, I think sometimes that that aspect in in cyber, there's a lot of compartmentalization that I'm an analyst, I'm a threat hunter, I'm blue team, I'm red team, I'm this, that, and the other. I I think it needs to be more of a we're on the same team. Yeah, kind of. Absolutely. Thing. Even so, when I was an enterprise security architect at Capital One. Um, yeah, I, I was friends with some of the guys that were on the red team. Right. So. When I was working and doing consulting with the lines of business on security controls to put in place, and when they were trying to negotiate certain types of controls, and I was trying to explain the threat vectors, a lot of times, you know, if I felt like my message wasn't getting across, I would go back to my red team friend and say, hey, this environment over here has these types of problems. I'm having trouble trying to get them to comply it would be helpful if part of your operation included something like this so that because when the red team runs into it and that report goes up to the board, usually those things get fixed. Right. When the red team is showing, hey, I use this and this and this, um, it definitely gets a lot more visibility. But, you know, I use stuff like that with the red team guys. And there's a couple of times I was walking through a parking garage in some of the buildings and I saw some of uh, Cat 5 wiring out there. I would go and tell the red team guys, I'm like, hey. I don't know if it's our wiring, maybe it's somebody else's wiring, but maybe we're taking a look into because I could easily go into that parking garage, splice that, put a sniffer in there and start sniffing all the traffic. <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> I really hope that's not a true story. Is yes, it, it is. Did, were they actually running? Was that public exposure of those yeah. cables? Okay. Publicly exposed cap five blue cable running through a cable tray in the parking garage parking garage I, I have i think i i i can do one better than that so uh i i had honest this is another honest got true story i think i mentioned on another episode where uh, so our listeners be like not that one again but there's a a well-known production house whose movies i can guarantee you you have seen and uh they they have not one CISO, multiple CISOs and multiple CIOs. So we're not talking a small company. Mm -hmm. It's giant Acme Corp. And uh, when a movie is done, the final cut was going on a publicly exposed server out there. Mm -hmm. Because you know what? The editors who actually, there's no more cutting room floor like days of yesteryear. Uh, it's uh, it's all done in the computer. And uh that's what what they had was a shared uh, mega drive of some kind <laughs> that was open to the planet. And you think about that, like, you know, what was the investment in this production? A hundred million, two hundred million dollars. Mm -hmm. 
And you could get access to it without, you don't even need to break anything. You just needed to find the server and download it. I was, I was at a company and uh, one of the developers, he said, Hey, I need an FTP site to transfer some files with some folks. I was like, okay, no problem. This is going to be good. This was, this was early, right? (laughs) It was, it was early. And so we stand it up and I was like, okay, so I said, do me a favor. I said, do not go in and turn on anonymous access for FTP. I said, we'll set up usernames and passwords. And I went ahead and I set some of those up for him. Long story short about what was it? Maybe two months later, uh, operations manager comes to me and he's like, why are we seeing all this traffic going to such and such server? I don't know. And it was in our, our dev server, right? And I start looking. I'm like, well, wait a minute. That's that's the server that we set the FTP up on. And I was like, hey, Alex, are you still running that FTP server? Oh, yeah, I am. I forgot to turn it off. It's like, oh, man. So I go and I log into the server and I look. And I, sure enough, he flipped on anonymous FTP access. Anonymous. Let's just say a lot of adult content was loaded onto that FTP server and was being distributed all over the place. Oh, man. <laughs> so I had to go back. and Well, somebody was having a good time yes. with it. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there's stories. You know, I, I we should uh, at some point get a bunch of... Uh, folks together and do like our top 10 screw ups that we've seen out there. <laughs> there. There's some stories that we could, we could tell that would be very, very interesting. That that's uh that's, that's funny. Yep. <laughs> so uh, let me ask you uh, about, you know, about cloud security inside out. There's a myth out there. And this is for all our listeners where you have executives that are like, well, we're using Microsoft 365. We're on Amazon. We're using S3 buckets. Amazon takes care of our security. We don't have to worry about that anymore. What can I, I look? I can't make this stuff up, man. It's not this. Yeah. Me, <laughs> I see you laughing, yeah. but I can't make it up. So, what do you say to that crowd? <laughs> so, this is probably going to be my shortest response that you've gotten from me, which will probably be the most appreciated response, probably. <laughs> No, this has been fantastic. So I love it. My response to those that think that the security is all baked in for them and that their do- their job is done, you are a breach waiting to happen. It's just a matter of time. Sooner or later, if you think that your cloud service provider has and you're done with security just because you're using M365 or you're using Amazon for your cloud infrastructure, you couldn't be more right. wrong. You have a ton of work. They are only securing part of that stack. You are still responsible for a large portion of the stack above that, depending on whether it's an an IaaS, a PaaS, or a SaaS offering. There's still a lot of work that you need to be doing in order to control that attack surface and that plane properly. Well, folks, you heard it. Paul said it, not me. So <laughs> you know, when I say it, people are like, oh, well, you're an MSSP MDR firm. So you, you guys have your own self-interest in this thing. Oh, no, no, uh, real CISO said it. So <laughs> you heard it. And and uh, and, and, I'm, and I hope you act on it. And I, I've been, yeah, it shouldn't matter who's saying it because I've had those conversations with people too, where guys that worked for me were trying to tell somebody they needed to put a security control in. But I had to come on a phone call and tell the people the exact same thing he'd been telling them for three months, just so when they heard it come out of my mouth that, Oh, well, okay. Well, he's got that. He's got a title. It, the title shouldn't matter. What we should start thinking with is our head and logic and, and what the real threats are that are out there um, rather than letting titles get in the way of, of someone, you know, making a, a good solid sound judgment statement. Well, that's just too damn logical, so we're not going to do that. That's <laughs> that's typically how that goes. <laughs> so uh, now, you know, we, we only have a couple of minutes here, and boy, we haven't even gotten through the first two questions. <laughs> There's no way we're going to. But 
let's stick to the cloud then, because I, I know there's a lot of lot of movement there. Ha, has the attack surface, in fact, been dramatically enlarged by this movement to the cloud and remote work? Yes. As all the unfortunately, what what's the cause behind it? What what's changed in the? We always had laptops. We always had servers. What's changed? Um. So you know, the the biggest change was probably the pandemic, right? the the big push on the pandemic and a lot of people to scramble to enable remote work for their employees um, and still being able to do it in a secure manner, right? Even the federal government had challenges in that space because, you know, I, I talked to people and I knew about the a large amount of work that Microsoft was doing um, related to support the, the federal government when we went into this mode. Right. Um, so I think the pandemic's been a big part of it. We still lack all the necessary, you know, we're still short on skills and talent. And I know a lot of people, you know, trying to get into, into the industry as well. Um, but we still lack the skills and talent to, um, you know, be able to properly securely move workloads like all these different companies they've got people there's there's not enough knowledge and, and experience out there to help all the companies that are trying to go and put stuff in the cloud now um so a lot of people are doing it the best they can and they don't even realize the risk that they're bringing on to their company because they just they don't know but they're trying to do the right thing by you know trying to make their company agile and being able to respond to business needs quickly right. by using these cloud services but they don't realize, you know, the other risks that are being brought on because the, the threat vectors and attack vectors start to change a little bit. And they're not prepared to to respond or prevent them from happening a lot of times. Do you have your version of the CISA top five or three things that a new company should absolutely be doing that when they're looking at mobilizing in the cloud? Wow. Top things. You, so, and I ask this because we're running short on time. So, I get you know, it's misconfigurations, right? Okay. Access control, identity and access management, and and the controls that go along with it. Visibility and monitoring. Um, let's see; those are my top three. Knowing where your data is. Hey, that works. But... Oh, that's that's a yeah. huge one. Knowing where your data is. And what that data yeah, is. And what it is. <laughs> um, so you know how to protect it. How do you know? You don't know how you, you know, if you don't know what the data is, you don't know how to protect it. So um, so there's four. Um, blanking on a fifth one right that's... now. Hey, hey, top four, we'll take that. You know, I, I look at the CISA top three, and I I think most companies have a hard time with even getting the top three done right. Oh, so yeah. Inventory. We've got four There's here. my fifth. There's my fifth. Inventory management. Because with the inventory... It, and when you say inventory of assets? Yeah. How do I know if, it, if it's even supposed to be there? How do I know if it's rogue? That's the first thing. Is it rogue? I've walked into some companies and I was like, so when you do asset and inventory management, I was like, how do you guys detect rogue device on your network? And I just got no answer and blank stares. And I was like, no, please, no. Like, you you don't know when you've got a rogue device on your network. This This isn't good, right? And you know what the interesting thing is? I, I read a stat on this. So if companies that have deployed tools like uh, any asset manager, there's so many of them out there. A lot of times, more often, on average, they find 10% more assets than they actually thought that they had. Yep. I've talked to some people that are higher than that. Like 50%, like wow. missing 50% of their assets and they don't even know it. Now, how can that happen? That's a big number. That's half. The <laughs> well, a lot of it ends up being like shadow IT, right? Somebody goes up, spins up a cloud account. Next thing hey, you spin up a cloud account. I mean, have you looked, you, you put an app in there and I mean, you, you, next thing you know, you got a couple thousand resources real quick, right? You, you know, some S3 buckets, some Lambda functions, some EC2s, VPC security group, you know, all the objects going into an S3, 
it doesn't take long for, you know, an asset count to go up. Yeah. When you, now that you describe that, that makes perfect sense, but I would hope that people are accounting for that. They, that to me is like a critical infrastructure. You, you need to have that in your, not all people are sites. And I learned, you know, the inventory piece, especially with the cloud when I first did the government. So I, I worked on four back-to-back government cloud-first initiatives. One, the first one was uh, DOD uh, HIPAA healthcare. Uh, to a, it was HIPAA and DIACAP standard for the Department of Defense. The uh, second one, we were actually partnered with Amazon Web Services when Amazon received their FISMA moderate certification. We were actually partnered with them. We built a console in front of Amazon's console um, that met the uh, FIPS 140-2 requirements that at that point in time, uh, AWS was not prepared to, to do, and they didn't have identity and access management. Everybody was still logging in with a root account. So we, we built an abstraction layer in front of their console that allowed us to do identity and access management in front of the AWS accounts and, and handle that along with a full security stack that I'd built out inside of AWS with enterprise tools that had never actually been run in a SaaS manner inside of a cloud platform. <laughs> so, well, that that's, that's very cool. And then uh, there was, uh, and you know what, we, we want to get more into that, but we are, we promised you that we would have you out of here <laughs> in an hour. Um, We've only scratched the surface, Paul. I mean, this this has been delightful. I, you know, when you're uh, available, would love to get you back and and get into more details on some of these other things. But you've had some tremendous insights. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure being on your show, and I appreciate I, I, the invite. I've had a great time talking to you. Oh, yeah, we've had a great time listening, and and there's a lot of wisdom there. Um, would love to have you back and. And it's just been a great conversation and and we're going to be respectful of your time so you can get to your next meeting. But this is fantastic. Uh, We'll we'll look forward to don't be a stranger around this. Absolutely. (laughs) No problem. Thank you.